Tonight we're going to focus on the two ordinances of the church. Last week we talked about the doctrine of the church. Tonight we'll consider uh, how that doctrine expresses itself specifically in two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. I've got to be honest with you, um, theologians write uh, dissertations on these topics and not both of them together, <laughs> individually. Um, I, I've, I went to look at uh, a couple of books and uh, quickly realized that I was going to be in over my head to try to preach both of these in one sermon and cover all the details. Um, so what I want to re really focus on is what Baptists believe and why we believe it. In other words, so, so we'll mention a little bit of what like Catholics teach or what some other denominations teach. We'll get to a little bit of the Lutheran in, in the Lord's Supper, but um, I really want to focus on where Baptists stand. And the reason for that is because that's what this is. This is, <laughs> this is a study of Baptist doctrine, so, so we're going to focus in there. So we'll mention some of the other things. We'll talk a little bit about them, but more specifically, why we don't believe that but believe what we do instead. So let's start with the first of the two ordinances, and that is baptism. Now, do you think this is important to Baptists? Yeah, uh, um, it's kind of where we get our name from. <laughs> so it is pretty important, right? Baptism. So the doctrine of the church specifically is a unique doctrine for Baptists. It plays out in both of these, both baptism and the Lord's Supper, uh, and so part of the way we look at the church is because of the way we look at baptism. Part of the way we look at baptism is because of the way we look at the church. It all comes together. That's why these two are back-to-back -back in the Baptist Faith and Message. So without further ado, let's start. The Baptist Faith and Message has two paragraphs in this article. The first concerns baptism. Christian baptism is the immersion of a believer in water in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It is an act of obedience, symbolizing the believer's faith in a crucified, buried, and risen Savior. The believer's death to sin, the burial of the old life, and the resurrection to walk in newness of life in Christ Jesus. It is a testimony to his faith in the final resurrection of the dead. Being a church ordinance, it is prerequisite to the privileges of church membership and to the Lord's Supper. Baptism is older than Christianity. Uh, if you were a Jew but not born a Jew, if you wanted to become a Jew but you weren't a son of Abraham, you had to be baptized. They called it a proselyte baptism, and that was one of the aspects of becoming a Jew. Uh, so it even predates Christianity, but it was vitally important. Jesus himself baptizes, and not only does Jesus baptize, we find the forerunner of the Messiah, John the Baptist, named for being one who baptized, who, who baptized a baptism unto repentance. So we have, we have this, this theme of baptism very early in the life of the church, before the life of the church, but even early in the life of the church. And in fact, uh, if you look through the book of Acts, there are several, and we'll mention them in a few minutes, um, there are several instances where people are baptized. Greg Allison wrote a book called Historical Theology. Right after talking about all these occurrences of baptism in just the book of Acts, he says this, quote, the missionary enterprise focused on repentance, faith in Christ, 
and baptism as the steps of initiation. So very early in the church, we have baptism taking a primary role. And there's a good reason for that, right? Jesus gives his great commission. Go and therefore, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In fact, early, uh, the early church had this manual called the Didache. And in the Didache, it gives all kinds of instructions for new believers and, and for church uh, men to know how to run the church. And one of the things it talks about in talking about baptism, it gives advice on how to do the baptism. So it actually says, before you baptize someone, you need to talk with them. You need to teach them the elements of the faith and make sure not only that they understand it, but that they're applying it into their life before they go into baptismal waters. Not only that, uh, whenever you can, it specifies you should use running water and you should use cold water. How would you, how'd you like that? Anybody baptizing cold water? I was. Peter wasn't working. It's interesting. <laughs> Thankfully, um, ever since then, when I've done the baptisms, I've always done it in warm water. I've never had to do it in really cold water. We had some cooler water here one, one time, but, but it wasn't quite as bad. Um, I was I was baptized in cold water because they didn't have uh, a heater at all. In fact, and yeah, it was it was quite chilly. I know some folks that are baptized in a local creek. Some folks are baptized uh, in a bathtub. I've seen folks baptized in a swimming pool before. I've seen folks baptized in all kinds of different places. But whenever possible, the Didache says use cold water and use running water, not still water. Um, but when you can't, you can use a warmer lake if that's what you have available. Or if you don't even have a big body of water for immersion, it's, it's okay. But only if you have to, to uh, pour water on top of their head three separate times. Once for the Father, once for the Son, once for the Holy Spirit. So the Didache even lists out, okay, this is how you should do baptism. But Baptist, it, see, okay, so Baptist didn't really depart. Baptist went around. The Catholic Church changed the way it did things. Um, one of the interesting things that happened that's not directly related to baptism, but kind of is, is the fact that once the Catholic Church became the basic religion of Rome, you know, Constantine ascends to the, to the, uh, to the emperorship, and he, he basically makes Christianity the law. Not quite, but basically does. And then a little bit later, it is it does become the official religion of the Roman Empire. All these people suddenly flock to the church to become Christians, right? You know, I mean, it kind of happens that way. When the emperor says, you need to do this, everybody says, all right, let's do it. So, so they all come to the church. The church had a problem. A lot of the folks that were coming weren't exactly converts. They were just trying to please the emperor or just, just going along with the status quo or just doing what local officials said that they had to do. And so they created... That created this longer and longer interval that, that is called the catechism process. And, and catechism could take, uh, some church fathers tell us, three years or more in many cases because these people need to be trained and taught before they were baptized. So uh, kind of interesting, I think. But the church began doing something different. It was, it was developed, this, this doctrine that baptism is not only effective as demonstrating what God has already done, but it's actually part of the process 
of salvation. Specifically, it wipes away sin. All your sins committed to that point are expiated, if you will, in baptismal waters. And so what eventually ended up happening is the church started baptizing infants because infants have original sin. Because they're human beings, because they're born to humans, just because they're people, they inherit the original sin of Adam, and now if they die, they would be subject to that sin. So if baptism is the way that we get rid of that original sin, let's do it as soon as possible, right? And in fact, in 1339, a... a, uh, a the constitutions of a city called Padua required that parents present their children to the church by their eighth day in order to be baptized so that you could get rid of the original sin. Otherwise, the child's soul is in danger. Even early reformers, Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, and Zurich, all of them baptized infants too. Zwingli's interesting because at first he said we shouldn't be baptizing infants. But then a little later, he changes his mind on the basis of that argument of original sin. If, if there really is original sin and these infants are really going to be held accountable for it, we need to baptize them quickly. So why are Baptists so different? What, what is it about Baptists that make us not follow that infant baptism or what's sometimes called pedo-baptism, the baptism of small children? Why don't we do that? Why do we insist that it must be a believer going through baptism? Well, there's two basic arguments. The first is an argument from silence, really. Um, it's not enough to, to build an ironclad case on, but it's an important part of our case. And that is the fact that Scripture never talks about baptism and infants together explicitly. You don't see an infant being baptized in Scripture. You don't see a young child being baptized in scripture. Uh, what we do have, we do have some examples. So, Jesus. It's a great example to follow, right? Jesus, Matthew chapter 3. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? In other words, John's saying, you know, I'm really the one that needs your baptism. Not the other way around. But Jesus answered him, let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, Jesus makes the argument, look, we really need to do it this way. And I guess when the Messiah says this is the right way to do it, that's good enough, right? So John obliges. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he came up from the water. Behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased. Well, if God puts his stamp of approval, I think that pretty well settles it. This is, this is what needed to happen, right? So we have this incident in the life of Jesus. Now, when does this happen? This doesn't happen when he's 12 and his parents have left him behind in Jerusalem while he's sitting in the temple asking questions of rabbis. This doesn't happen when he's a little kid. This certainly doesn't happen while they're in Bethlehem and he's just been born. Jesus is an adult, in fact, Jesus, right after this, goes into the desert, gets tempted by the devil for 40 days, 40 nights, comes back out preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And off we go to the races, right? Jesus begins his public ministry. So a month and a half before he starts his public ministry, around the age of 30, most scholars would say, here's Jesus being baptized as an adult. 
There's other uh, incidences in connection with baptism. Uh, 3,000 people at Pentecost. It says that all of them repented and all of them believed and were baptized. The Samaritans in Acts chapter 8, the Ethiopian eunuch a little bit later in the same chapter, Saul, that persecutor of the church. The Gentiles uh, in Acts 10 and Acts 11, there's two different instances. Lydia and her household in Philippi, a little bit later, the jailer in Philippi and his family get baptized. Many Corinthians were baptized in Acts 18. Disciples of John the Baptist in Acts chapter 19 were baptized. A dozen of them, in fact. Of those, of those, of those instances throughout the book of Acts, there's only two where infants or small children could have possibly been involved. It was in the households of Lydia and the Philippian jailer. But even there, we don't know how old the people were that were baptized. We just see that their household was baptized. Their families were baptized. We don't know if they had young kids or not. We don't know. It, it's silence from the scripture. Not only do we have an argument from silence, we also have a direct connection made by Jesus himself. Look in Mark 16, 16. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Now, do you notice what's missing? What if you believe but aren't baptized? He doesn't address that, does he? It's interesting. The belief and the baptism go hand in hand with Jesus. He doesn't draw a distinction. There's no, there's no, there's no severing of the two. Uh, I, uh, I asked a pastor one time, I said, what do you say to someone when they say that baptism is necessary for salvation? He says, I agree. And I said, but, but baptism isn't what saves you. He said, no, but that's not what you said. Baptism is necessary for salvation, just like works are necessary for faith. You see, the two go hand in hand. If you have a genuine belief and trust in Christ, you are going to follow him. And, and following him starts with baptism. So the two are connected. If you're not being baptized, you're not really believing. Now, there are some people that might be unable to be baptized. They're, you know, you're on your deathbed and you accept Christ as Lord and you die within hours. You didn't get a chance to go through baptism. And if you're on a respirator, you probably don't need to be dumped in water anyway. There are certain cases where someone may not be able to be baptized. That's not what we're talking about here, though. If you can follow Christ in baptism and you choose not to, you are choosing not to believe. Your faith is dead because faith without works is dead. Now, that doesn't mean you've got to be baptized or you're not saved. Or you're not saved until you're baptized. That's not what I'm saying at all. But for Jesus, the two are connected. So there's, a, there's an argument from silence. Infants aren't baptized. There's also a positive argument from Jesus saying baptism and belief are directly connected. You can't separate the two. Now, there are some scriptures that seem to argue the opposite way. John 3, verse 5 is an example. Truly, truly, I say to you, this is Jesus talking, unless one is born of the water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. These folks would say, being born, born of the water, that's baptism. Born of the Spirit, that's the regeneration. I don't think for Jesus those are two different things. First of all, the way that the phrase is worded, water and spirit are connected in the same phrase of water and the Spirit. It's not of water and also of the Spirit. You, do you see that? They're not two separate phrases as though they're two different elements. It's one phrase, which means that these both might be elements, but they're elements of one thing. What one thing? 
Well, I think we find a clue in the Old Testament. Ezekiel chapter 36. God speaking through his prophet to Israel. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will, I'm sorry, that's verse 26. Verse 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. Uncleanliness. Uncleannesses, excuse me. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. I was about to accuse a Hebrew prophet of bad English. <laughs> you will be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. Then he says, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. Do you see the connection here? I'm cleaning you with water and I'm giving you a new spirit. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues and be careful to obey my rules. Do you see what's happening here? These are two sides of the same coin. Being born of water and the spirit. I believe what Jesus is saying here is that there's two aspects to our salvation. There's the taking away the guilt of sin and there's the imputation of righteousness. Both water, cleansing, washing with the water of the word and the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit giving us new life. Both of them are required to be part of the kingdom of God. In other words, God's work is complete. Not only does he just take away the bad, he gives us something good to replace it. And baptism kind of shows us that, too, when you think about it. Buried with him in baptism, that's the death of the old man. Raised to walk in newness of life. That's the new birth in the Spirit. So when Jesus says you have to be born of water and of the Spirit, he's not talking about baptism. He's talking about regeneration. He's talking about salvation. So we believe believers should be the only ones baptized. Not infants. An infant can't put faith in Christ. You say, well, their parents can put faith in Christ. Yes. That's why we do baby dedications. Because we want the parents to know that parents play an important role in this process. That they can't have faith for the child. The child has to have faith for them. So we wait. And when they accept Christ, and when they're ready to go through those waters, we, we put them through those waters. Kelsey's a good example. She gave her heart to Christ, wasn't quite ready yet. That's okay. I even told him, I said, look, we got time. She's saved. She knows Christ. Well, we can wait for her to be ready. And we did. And then when she was ready, we did. Not only do we believe that only believers should be baptized, we believe that immersion is the proper method of baptism. In fact, the word baptizo literally means to immerse. I mean, you know, that's a pretty good argument right there. And the reason for that, not just is the meaning of the word, it's what baptism does. So when we think about this process of baptism, we are drawing a picture for people to look at. Paul actually makes this clear. Look in Romans 6. This is verses 3 through 5. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't sprinkle dirt on a dead guy and call him buried. Anybody ever seen that? Go to a funeral, they sprinkle a little dirt and said, there he's buried. No. You put them in a coffin that's sealed shut so you can't smell anything, and you put them in the ground into a, a concrete box so that, so that the decay doesn't happen as quick and, and you don't smell stuff when you're walking around the cemetery later. I mean, you bury him. You get him six feet under, right? That's, that's what we do. Now, in New Orleans, you do something different because that's swampland, and, and anytime it floods, you don't need dead bodies floating around everywhere. So, so you do it a little bit different in New Orleans. But around here, we put them in the ground. We bury them. 
So what a picture baptism gives us is that picture that we are buried with Christ. As we go under the water, we are buried with him. We have crucified ourselves. Uh, No, actually, I guess a better way would be we are crucified with Christ. And it is no longer us that live, but Christ that lives in us. That's That sounds like a pretty good Bible verse. Maybe someone should put that in there. So we picture the death of Christ, but keep reading. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So we have not only the burial with Christ, now we have the resurrection with Christ too. And if we're raised with Christ in baptism, that's the symbol because we know that eventually we're going to be raised to walk in a new life for all eternity when we are resurrected with him. You see, Christ is the first fruits. He is just coming preview of coming attractions. All of us will be risen with him. First Thessalonians tells us that the dead in Christ shall rise first, then we who are living will meet them in the air and be with him forever. So we have, we have this picture in baptism of this death, burial, and resurrection of us in conjunction with that of Christ. Verse 5, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. In Colossians, Paul says, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. This symbolism of burial and resurrection shows that we are identifying ourselves with Christ. We're living out the gospel. Now, this is a one-time kind of thing. There are ongoing things that we do to live out the gospel. But this is a good way to get started and a good way to show others what has already happened. One more thing about baptism, then we'll move on to the Lord's Supper. Church membership begins at baptism. You are not a member of a church until you are baptized as a believer. Now, you can go join whatever church you want, and they can call you a member. But we recognize that in the Baptist life, only baptized believers are part of the church. And this is something even so much so that in communion, only baptized believers are to be a part. Now, this is one of those things that might sound a little exclusive might kind of make us feel like a VIP club. Yeah, we're, we're the special ones because we get to do this and they don't. Uh, in reality, it should call us to go preach the gospel, bring people to faith in Christ, that they can follow him in baptism and be part of this too. So let's turn to that second ordinance, that Lord's Supper. We have the, we have the baptism. That's our first ordinance. That's the initial. That's the initiation ordinance, right? That's how we get into the church. But now that we're part of the church, the Lord's Supper becomes this regular recurring ordinance that constantly occurs in the life of the church. Now, some churches do this weekly. Some churches do this monthly. Some churches do it um, every three months like we do. The Bible doesn't tell us how often to do it. I think there's advantages in all of them. In, in weekly, you have the advantage of this regular rhythm of life that includes remembering the Lord's death. That can be a powerful thing when you do it somewhat often, monthly or quarterly, you can kind of help keep it from becoming old hat, but still constantly establish this rhythm. Those can be good things. That's not what matters to God so much as how we do it. God doesn't care about whether the bread is unleavened or leavened. I think unleavened bread gives us a little bit bigger picture because we don't often eat bread without yeast. 
So I think that kind of makes it a little more special. But that's not, that's my preference. That's not scripture. God didn't say you had to get rid of the yeast in communion bread. They were eating unleavened bread because they were eating the Passover meal when he did it. But he doesn't tell us we have to do it that way. Some people use wine. Some people use grape juice. I don't think God cares. Don't get drunk on wine if you're going to use wine. That's why we have the little things that you get. So you're not a glutton. It's just enough to remind you, hey, this is just a little piece. What's coming? What's coming is, is much better, but this you're just getting that little tiny bit. Now, what's more important to God is how we do it, how we remember his death, how we anticipate the marriage supper of the Lamb to come, how we confess our sins before him and do it rightly. That's what matters to him. Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper on the final night before his death. I just said it was a Passover meal. Luke 22 tells us the story. Oh, let's read. Let's read. Uh, I guess we should read the article and then, then talk about it, right? Here's the article. The Lord's Supper is a symbolic act of obedience. Notice uh, that's the same way the baptism article, that, that paragraph started, that it's a symbolic act of obedience, whereby members of the church through partaking of the bread and the fruit of the vine, memorialize the death of the Redeemer and anticipate his second coming. That's all it says. So, Luke 22. This is when Jesus um, instituted it. He took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my so we have him giving the bread, then giving the cup. Paul refers to the event over in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a preparation, a participation, excuse me, in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? What he's saying here isn't that we're taking the actual blood and the actual body. What he's saying is, when we take this, are we not participating with Christ? Just as we were buried with Christ and raised to walk in newness of life with him in baptism. So in the Lord's Supper, when we take the bread and we take the juice, what we're doing is we're taking part in the sacrifice of Christ by memorializing it, by remembering it. It would be like us saying that we celebrate Independence Day, not because we signed the Declaration of Independence, but because we remember what it is and why it's important, right? It's the same idea here. Next chapter of 1 Corinthians, Paul says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Every time we take it, we are proclaiming Jesus' death, his sacrifice. That sacrifice where, where he... Uh, he could have grabbed the hold of equality with God. God's image. He could have held on to that and not let that go. But in humility and selflessness, he lets that go and instead takes on the form of a slave being made like a man. And when he had come as a man in his external form, he humbled himself to the point of obedience, even to death on a cross. Yeah, that's pretty good, too. Someone ought to write that in Scripture. Oh, yeah. Philippians chapter 2, right? All my good ideas are taken already. Every time we eat this bread, every time we drink this cup, we are remembering what God has done. So it connects us with our past, but not just with our past. It connects us forward, too, with our future. One of the cool things about this Lord's Supper is that we anticipate what's to come. You see, there's coming a supper where we don't get a little teeny tiny cup and a stale little cracker. 
wafer, crumb, whatever you want to call it. There's coming a day when we have a much bigger feast in front of us. John sees in Revelation 19, Then I heard what seems to be the voice of a great multitude. He says that a lot in Revelation. Like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah for the Lord, our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. And you know the best part of a marriage, right? The reception where you eat. Not really. Not for the bride and groom, but it is for everybody else. It was granted for her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Of course, right after this, John tries to bow to the angel. And the angel says, no, 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 I'm just a servant. Don't bow to me. So we have the past, Christ's death, the future, his second coming. We also, by the way, have a present connection. And, I'm, and I talk about this sometimes when we take communion because we're not the only ones taking it. I mean, it is called communion. We do it together, not only with each other, but with other churches that take communion. Churches that all over the world celebrate communion, remember God's son dying on the cross, anticipate that son coming back in full glory. I one time went to Beeson Divinity School at, on the campus of Sanford. I was doing a preview day there, considering going there. Ended up not going there. But while I was there, I went there. They had a scheduled preview day the week, the next week. But I was there the week before that. And so they didn't plan on doing this with guests. But I was a guest that day, and so I ended up doing it. I, we ended up having communion in the chapel service. It's kind of interesting to have communion with professors of all kinds of evangelical stripes. They have Lutheran and Reformed and Baptist and Pentecostal professors all there. It's it's a interdenominational school on purpose. The dean's a Baptist, but it's kind of interesting communing with people of different faiths. Another time I went to an Episcopal church during a weekday. They do communion practically every day. Anytime there's a service, they have communion. And so I went on a Tuesday and they were doing communion as part of the service. And there's this room with about as many people as, as are in this room, except it's about a fifth the size of this room. And everybody was drinking the same cup, and thankfully I got the cup first. <laughs> I didn't have to worry about it. Don't, don't tell me about who drank before. I don't care. Uh, it's interesting when you take communion with people that aren't like you, that don't prescribe to your brand of the Christian faith. You begin to recognize that part of God's glory in this is that he doesn't need us to believe exactly right in order for us to be useful. And in more than that, he can use people of all stripes, even Baptists, for his glory. Kind of gave me a little bit bigger picture of those two instances. And it reminded me that what we do when we take the Lord's Supper, Communion, Eucharist, it isn't so much about what's on the table as in what's in our hearts. Paul warns in 1 Corinthians, don't take it unworthily. And that's really the secret on both of these, isn't it? Because when you step into those baptismal waters, you are celebrating a new life being born in Christ. When you step to the communion table, you are remembering Christ's death, and proclaiming it until he comes again. The real secret of these ordinances is not just in the action of them. It's in the attitudes of the performers. 
And what makes us a church is God's work within each and every one of us. That's why these ordinances are so vital, why they're so important, because they draw us closer to the God who put us here in the first place. Father, thank you for your gifts of ordinances. I, I never I never thought way back when I was just beginning to know you, when I was beginning to learn the Bible books in order and memorize verses every week in school, I didn't realize that these things that we would do, these baptism and Lord's Supper and other things the church does too, I didn't realize just how much you had put into them. I knew you died for us. I I knew that, but God, you're putting a lot more than just your son's death and resurrection into these things. You made a church as your plan A, and there is no plan B. You put everything into this, not just the life, not just the death and a resurrection. You put your entire will into this body, this bride of Christ. So every time we do these ordinances, every time we baptize a new believer, every time we take the Lord's Supper, remind us, remind us of that hymn, Jesus paid it all. I mean, you emptied your bank account doing your will. Help us make sure it's not a gamble, but an investment that reaps huge dividends for our families, our community, our nation, our world, for your glory. Help us celebrate these ordinances and be your church for your glory. In Jesus' name.